jealousy and wrath really do seem like negative attributes. Certainly at a human level they do. How can these align with God's other attributes, such as love, grace, and mercy? Who would imagine a God being jealous and wrathful? Well, that's the problem. Our imagination Right? If we rely on our own imagination to understand the character of God, we'll most certainly get it wrong. J.I. Packer said this about God's jealousy. Have this in your handout. Were we imagining a God, then naturally we should ascribe to him only characteristics which we admired, and jealousy would not enter the picture. Nobody would imagine a jealous God, but we are not making up an idea of God by drawing on our imagination. We are seeking instead to listen to the words of Holy Scripture in which God himself tells us the truth about himself. And I think this quote can certainly apply to his attribute of wrath as well. We must square all of our thinking against his word, even when it doesn't fit our natural tendencies or preferences. As we'll see, the jealousy and wrath of God are both reflections and outworkings of His perfect holiness and righteousness. So, as difficult as it might seem to think on these attributes of jealousy and wrath, we'll explore what His Word has to say, and that will be our guide. So, let's begin with the attribute of God's jealousy. And our definition here is God's limitless and fervent zeal to glorify Himself in the lives of His people. His fervent zeal, limitless and fervent zeal to glorify Himself in the lives of His people. God has an intense and passionate desire to protect His own glory and His honor. This jealousy is not a petty or selfish emotion that we might think of as humans, but it's rather, it's a holy and righteous zeal for his own glory and for the good of his people. Now, unlike God, among humans, there are two types of jealousy in general. There's sinful and there's virtuous. Of the sinful type, this is certainly nothing new. We see in Scripture a number of examples. The jealousy Rachel had of Leah when she was not able to bear a child. Genesis 29 and 30. The jealousy Joseph's brothers had of him because of the favor that he received. Right? In Genesis 37. Go all the way back in Genesis to the beginning and consider Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God, but Cain's wasn't. And Cain's jealousy was so enraged that he killed Abel. That's, human jealousy is often rooted in sin. Unhealthy relationships that involve envy and insecurity, lack of trust, it can be very destructive. But there's another kind of jealousy, a virtuous kind. It's a zeal to protect a love relationship. So among humans, this is most properly expressed in the covenant of marriage. When a husband has a virtuous jealousy for his wife or a wife for her husband, it's with the intent or a zeal, if you will, to keep the relationship intact. God's jealousy is like this, but only perfect and infinite. 
John Piper, this is a great quote here. It's a long one, but I think is worth uh, examining. He says, God is not jealous like an insecure employer who fears that his employees might get lured away by a better salary elsewhere. God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. Scripture views God's jealousy as being this virtuous kind. It's a quality of his covenant love for his own people. We see this in the Old Testament with God's covenant with Israel, right? often described as a marriage. However, many times this metaphor of marriage is used to describe the unfaithfulness of Israel when they worshiped idols or mingled with other pagan nations, right? God saw this as spiritual adultery, provoking his jealousy and his vengeance. So let's look at some of the characteristics of God's jealousy. Number one, God is exclusive. His jealousy is exclusive. One of the primary expressions of God's jealousy in Scripture is his demand for exclusive worship and devotion from his people. He's not willing to share his glory with any other gods or idols, and he will not tolerate the worship of anything or anyone else in his place. It's exclusive. As the creator and sustainer of all things, he alone deserves our worship and devotion. If you remember, after God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he gave them his law on Mount Sinai. It's a familiar passage, Exodus 20, where he, uh, we read about the Ten Commandments. In the second commandment, in verses 4 through 6, he says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And he reiterates this in Exodus 34. He he says, you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. His name is jealous. This gives us a really clear indication that jealousy is a core attribute of his essence. He says, nothing else can be worshipped. Besides him. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, 23 and 24, Moses tells the Israelites, So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And not only in the Old Testament we hear of this expressed in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So how do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Psalm 78.58 says, for they, the Israelites, provoked him 
with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. It's with idolatry that his jealousy is provoked. Now, when we think of idols in Scripture, we read about idols of wood or stone or metal. But it's not just that, is it? The Heidelberg Catechism defines idolatry as this, having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the Word. So an idol is anything or anyone that takes the rightful place of God in our lives. Wealth, power, fame, relationships, and even religious practices can be idols. This concept of human idolatry has been a problem since the beginning of time. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. As fallen creatures, as creatures who have a desire to worship, we have this natural tendency to create false idols. If not for the heart-changing work of the indwelling spirit, when we trust in Christ for salvation. So another quality of his jealousy is that he desires to be known as he truly is. Uh, multiple times in Scripture he says, that you may know that I am the Lord. Isaiah 40-48, that whole passage of Scripture, he's comparing himself to other man-made gods. Twelve times he says, I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36-21, he says, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. He is jealous for his name to be honored and glorified exclusively. So number two, God is chastening. He is chastening. Another word for chasten is discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The King James Version says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So proper chastening or discipline is a proof of love and of righteous jealousy. It's not out of spite. Like a loving father does with a son, our heavenly father does with his born-again children. With, when his children head for sin, he brings chastening into their lives to direct them back to holiness. And this can come in a variety of forms of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of of a believer, a guilty conscience, loss of peace, rebuke from a brother or sister in Christ, unpleasant circumstances, any number of other negative consequences for choosing sin. Sometimes the chastening of the Lord can be physical illness or even death. 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul writes about those who took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. In other words, dead. Examples of God's chastening his people are found throughout the Bible. The Israelites regularly disobeyed God's commands. He was patient with them and also warned them through many prophets. But, as we know, they were stubborn. They were stiff-necked. Many times they chose to disobey by uh, embracing idols or evil practices. God brought chastening upon them 
including plagues or enemy attacks. He did this out of his righteous love and jealousy for them. We also see in Scripture where God chastened individuals and he restored the relationship. King David, perfect example. He said uh, with him in 1 Samuel 7, 14 and 15, uh, the Lord says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Note, when we're using this term chastening and disciplining here, this is not punishment. That's intentional. Because those who are in Christ, who have repented and believed in Him, placed their faith in Him for salvation, all punishment for sin was placed on Jesus at the cross. Romans 5.9, Paul says, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Right? In Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That punishment and wrath is different from chastening. So as much as it might hurt, we should be thankful for chastening of the jealous God that we have. Number three, God is protective. He is protective. A virtuous jealousy is always protective. Earlier I read in Exodus 34, 14, where God tells Israel not to worship any other God because the Lord is a jealous God. This warning was given to them as they were about to enter the promised land, if you remember. God's jealousy was a reminder to them that he was their protector and provider, that they should trust in him alone as they enter in a new land with new temptations. In the New Testament, we see God's protective jealousy in his care for the church. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul writes, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. This jealousy of Paul was rooted in his desire to protect them from false teaching and that they would remain faithful to Christ. Also, God's jealousy protects the holiness of his own character. Uh, being utterly holy, he cannot tolerate sin or unrighteousness of any kind, and his jealousy seeks to protect that purity and the integrity of his character. So, his jealousy is protecting. Number four, God is avenging in his jealousy. I mentioned this last week as part of his justice that he is avenging, but out of his jealousy, it drives him to take vengeance on his enemies. Now, we're going to look a little bit more deeply into this uh, as we look at God's wrath next, but here we focus on the fact that God's jealousy moves him to act, right? It fuels the intensity of his wrath. Isaiah 42, 13 says, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. He's motivated by his jealousy. Nahum 1-2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. In the Old Testament, we see God's vengeance displayed against Israel's enemies multiple times. 
In the New Testament, Acts 12.23, we see a very specific example of God taking vengeance when Herod is struck dead because he didn't give God glory. And of course, in Revelation, we see God's vengeance poured out. The ultimate vengeance is in hell itself. Now, you may be asking, does God's jealousy contradict his sovereignty? If God is all-powerful and in control of everything, why does he need to be jealous of his people's worship and devotion? God's sovereignty indeed means he's in control of all things. We've covered that before, but it doesn't mean that he's indifferent to the attitudes and the actions of his people. His jealousy indicates a personal interest in the worship and devotion of his people. He has a deep care for us, and it's expressed in his jealousy. Remember, God's jealousy is not a sign of some weakness or insecurity, which is often the case among humans. It's a manifestation or an outworking of his perfect holiness righteousness, and love. J.I. Packer said, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a literally praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. So some takeaways here for jealousy. One, regularly examine yourself. Are you provoking God's jealousy? Are there any idols in my life? Am I faithful to Him? Psalm 139, 23, and 24, David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. God's jealousy requires the assessment of our loyalties. We should be asking ourselves and asking the Lord to reveal to us, are there any idols in my life? I don't expect you to confess that you have wood, stone, or metal objects in your home. But is there anything that's dividing my loyalty that's causing me to share the love that should be wholly His? And if there is any such thing, we need to repent of our unfaithfulness because idolatry is spiritual adultery. Charles Spurgeon said, remember that you serve a jealous God and be very careful not to provoke him to jealousy. Every idol must be cast down or his comfortable presence cannot be enjoyed. Takeaway number two, God's jealousy commends proper imitation. Be zealous for him. So how do we display virtuous jealousy? There are a few ways. One is in marriage, which is to be held in exclusivity and honor. If you're married, you should have a virtuous jealousy for your spouse. In ministry, we should have a virtuous jealousy for our church to desire that it be protected and to continue to proclaim the truth. Psalm 69.9, David says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Uh, Joel James, who wrote a booklet called Who is God, says this, God's glory is on the line every time the church worships. 
His reputation is at stake every time a preacher preaches. God demands theological correctness from his own people because he refuses to have his name defamed by inaccurate theology or wrong worship. Another way is in personal holiness. 1 Peter 1.16, he quotes the Old Testament where God says multiple times, You shall be holy for I am holy. This means living in personal obedience to his word, worshiping him alone, seeking to become more Christ-like. And when we pursue holiness, we show our love for him and honor his jealous desire for us to be set apart for him. Because God is jealous for us, we should be zealous for him. Not so much outward enthusiasm, but depth of love for him, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. J.C. Ryle said, A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. And lastly, number three, be thankful that God is jealous for you. God's jealousy should remind us that he is not indifferent or ambivalent toward us. His relationship with us is passionate. He cares how we relate to him. He cares about our devotion and our loyalty to him. For those who've repented and believed in Christ for salvation, God's love will not let us go because of his jealousy. That should cause us to be thankful and have confidence in his promises. Charles Spurgeon says, Hide yourself under the banner of Jehovah's jealousy. It is bloody red, I know. Its ensign bears a thunderbolt and a flame of fire. But hide yourselves, hide yourselves under it, for what enemy shall reach you there? If it be to God's glory to save me, I am entrenched behind the munitions of stupendous rock. Isn't that good? So we have a jealous God for our benefit and for his glory. So that's a brief observation of God's jealousy. Inadequate, I am sure. But let's move on to our next attribute of God's wrath. I've defined God's wrath here as God's holy and just response to sin and evil. God's holy and just response to sin and evil. Uh, The dictionary defines wrath as a deep, intense anger and indignation. And indignation is defined as righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. God's wrath is a subject that's been downplayed or even outright denied, sometimes even within the church. Some have said that wrath is not really an attribute of God because it's an outworking of his other attributes, such as holiness and justice. Now, while that's true, it is such an outworking of his holiness and justice, we cannot dismiss what Scripture tells us about his wrath. A.W. Pink said, A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. I have not done that research myself. I will trust him on this. 
Some consider God's wrath as the dark side of God. There is no such thing. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Right? As with jealousy, we must be careful not to project human tendencies on this attribute of his wrath or any other character. When we think of wrath in human terms, seldom is it ever considered an outworking of holiness or justice. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. J.I. Packer said this about God's wrath. God's wrath is not the ignoble outburst that human anger so often is, a sign of pride and weakness, but it is holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right and glorious. I think that last phrase is another good definition we could use for God's wrath. His holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right and glorious. His holiness demands that he be angered by sin. A divine wrath is necessary response toward whoever and whatever breaks his law. This is true not only against sin, but also against the sinner. Otherwise, God would not be infinitely holy. So let's look at some characteristics of God's wrath. Number one, God's wrath is provoked by sin. His wrath is provoked by sin. God is divinely angry with sinners in their sin. He's never indifferent towards iniquity, but he's deeply provoked by it. Sin is an offense to his holy and perfect character. God doesn't exhibit his wrath capriciously or randomly or somehow out of control. He does so because he is provoked. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 9 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 9, we'll look at verses 7 and 8. Here Moses reminds the Israelites how their sins provoked his wrath. Deuteronomy 9, verses 7 and 8. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God, to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. That last reference there to Horeb is Mount Sinai, uh, when Moses went to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, if you remember. While he was on that mountain, the Israelites crafted the golden calf and worshipped it. As a result, God instructed the Levites to kill people who had worshipped that calf, about 3,000 people. He displayed his wrath against them. And he's done, he did this in the wilderness with the Israelites when they provoked them, provoked him with their sin. When they complained about their conditions, despite God providing them with food and water, he sent fiery serpents. Many died. When they refused to believe that God would give them victory over the inhabitants of Canaan, he punished them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This was a harsh punishment because 
it meant that none of the adults who had left Egypt would ever enter the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. God is moved to wrath by the sins of his people. That was true back then. It's also true now. Number two, God's wrath is a just response to sin. It is a just response to sin. God's justice demands that sin be punished. His wrath is the expression of that justice. It's not arbitrary, but he's always in line with his perfect righteousness. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Before the Apostle Paul lays out the amazing gospel of grace in his letter to the Romans, it, he begins with a declaration of God's wrath in chapter 1. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So before we can understand the grace of God, we must first understand His wrath. The value of grace becomes so much more and so much more meaningful when we understand the wrath in which that grace saves us from. Chapter 2 of Romans, verse 5 and 6, he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So where there is sin, disobedience, and evil, God's righteousness and justice requires a response. John MacArthur says, God would be unjust if he were passive or indifferent toward the evil things people do. Wrath is the only just response to wickedness. So number three, God's wrath is a necessary expression of his holiness. It's a necessary expression of his holiness. God's holiness means that he cannot tolerate sin and he must oppose it. As a result, his wrath is an expression of his holiness, which is obviously central and essential to his character. Remember last week we defined the attribute of God's holiness as his moral purity, absolute perfection, and complete separateness from sin and evil. He cannot be tainted with sin, and because his holiness will not allow it. Habakkuk 1.13, we read this last week when we were looking at his holiness, says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So in response to sin, God's wrath acts out of his holiness. A.W. Pink said, God's wrath is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Because God is holy, he hates sin, and because he hates sin and anger, burns against the sinner. Now, number four here, I want to outline real quickly the various types of God's wrath. And in my research, I came across six different ones. That is not um, uh, any sort of definitive list. Here, this is not inspired, but uh, there, there are 
really different kinds of his wrath, and I want to go through these really quickly, and I think this might help us um, in understanding it a little bit better. Uh, Letter A, eschatological wrath, and this is his wrath that will be poured out at the end of time. Eschatological, meaning the end times. Can I spell that? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Microsoft Word said that that was correct. Not that I spelled that myself. So eschatological wrath, this is known as the day of the Lord in Scripture, when the the world will receive fury and wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6 says that people will run to the hills, into caves to seek refuge from God, and yet they will cry out for the rocks to fall on them because they will not want to receive the tormenting wrath of God. Letter B, I'll have to spell this one too cataclysmic wrath. Another one is cataclysmic wrath. C-A-T-A-C-L-Y-S-M-I-C. Cataclysmic wrath is the wrath unleashed through national disasters. Uh, There are several examples of this in Scripture that we've seen. The rebellion of Korah, number 16, is an example of this type of wrath. The ground split and swallowed them up in his wrath. Another is Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, the Lord destroyed it with fire and brimstone from heaven. And of course, the flood is another example of cataclysmic wrath. Letter C, consequential wrath. The wrath experienced through reaping and sowing. Nick, do you need me to spell that one too? Okay, good consequential wrath. We reap what we sow. The death of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 is an example of this wrath. The prophet Hosea says this about Israel in Hosea 8-7, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Right? We reap what we sow. Letter D is abandonment wrath. Abandonment wrath. This is God's wrath by removing His restraining grace. This is a terrifying reality of God's wrath. When He finally and forever turns away from a person or a nation, leaving them in their sin, and removing His restraining grace from them. That is a form of His wrath. We see this type of wrath put on display at the end of Romans 1. Letter E, eternal wrath. This is God's final wrath unleashed on believers in hell. Turn over to Revelation 20 with me. Revelation 20. We'll look at verses 11 through 15. This is the Apostle John in his vision. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, 
from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is God's eternal wrath for those who are unredeemed. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes his judgment as he sits on his throne, separating the sheep, redeemed and saved, from the goats, the condemned and lost. Verse 46, he says, the sheep will go into eternal life and the goats to eternal punishment. There's one more type of wrath. Letter F, redemptive wrath. This is God's wrath poured out on Christ to save his people from their sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The prophet Isaiah states clearly in Isaiah 53.10 that it pleased the Father to crush him. This was a redemptive purpose of his wrath. So quickly, uh, number five here in our uh, characteristics of God's wrath. God's wrath is tempered by his mercy. His wrath is tempered by his mercy. While God's wrath is a just response to sin, an expression of his holiness, he's also merciful. He, He desires to show compassion and forgiveness to those who repent and turn to him. Psalm 2, 10 through 12, David says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a clear reference to the Son of God. This is a messianic psalm. Do homage to the Son is also translated as kiss the Son. It's a way to show humble submission. The the Lord has mercy on those who humble themselves and repent and turn to Christ. As Romans 2.4 says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? His mercy is ready to be applied for those who repent and believe in Christ, and they'll be spared from God's eternal wrath. Number six, for believers, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. That is redemptive wrath. The mercy that believers receive from God through faith in Christ, it's an amazing thing. However, the sins that believers have committed are no less of an offense to God's character than those of unbelievers. The difference is that for believers, the wrath to pay for those sins has been directed to Christ and not the believer. God's wrath against their sin was poured out on Christ when he died on the cross, and those who trust in Christ are saved from God's wrath, and they're reconciled to him. 
Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. I don't have time to read the quote here from Stephen Charnock, but I recommend you read it. This amazing description of the wrath of God poured out on Christ. Our substitute. He bore the wrath that we were due. Now, real quick, you may be asking, how can eternal wrath be necessary to pay for the sins of a finite person who dies in unbelief? I do not have the time to go into this in a lot of detail, but I'll try to address it real quickly. Sin is not just a finite offense. It's an offense against an infinitely holy God. Sin is not just a violation of a moral law or a code but it's an offense against the very character of God who is infinite. And as a result, the punishment for sin must also be infinite in its scope and its severity. So there's only two options for infinite payment. Either a finite creature, man, must pay for his sin for an infinite amount of time or an infinite being must pay for it once for all men for all time. And that was Christ's sacrifice. Right? So some real quick takeaways on God's wrath. We've seen from Scripture God's wrath is both temporal as well as eternal. Temporal in that in this world we see effects of the fall and our sin, which serve as a warning and a call for repentance. And then also eternal in His judgment against those who ultimately reject Him. So the most important question is, number one, are you ready? Each one of us has an earthly expiration date, predestined by God. We don't know when, but we know that it will happen, and taxes. If you are in Christ, then you are a recipient of His saving grace. He set His favor on you, and your destiny after this life is in heaven with Him. If that's you, then rejoice in your salvation. But if you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted in His sacrifice on the cross for the payment of your sins, then you're at odds with Him. More than that, Scripture says you are an enemy of God, alienated from Him, and you're destined for His judgment and wrath, which is eternal. Ephesians 2.3 says you are a child of wrath. But the good news is God, that that can be remedied. Right? In His patience, in His long-suffering, which we will get to in a couple of weeks, God offers salvation to all who believe. But Hebrews 9.27 tells us, inasmuch as it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every soul will either be damned in hell or will be pardoned in Christ. The Lord is ready to forgive you if you repent and believe. Nehemiah 9.17 says, You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. So, if you haven't repented and believed in Christ for salvation, do, do it now while there's still time. Takeaway number two, don't ignore or dismiss the reality of God's wrath. Allow this truth to humble you. Remember, sin is not only a violation of God's law, 
It's also an offense against God Himself. That should drive us to repent of our sins. And as believers, it should also give us a gratitude for His grace and His mercy in our lives through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Charles Spurgeon, in his very pastoral way, says this, Now, sinner, is it not most reasonable that if you would find peace with God, you should cease from that which provokes Him? Are you to go on thus vexing Him and yet expect Him to bless you? So in closing, God's jealousy and wrath, they're very sobering subjects. They're tough to contemplate, but they're essential elements of His character that we must understand if we're to have a right view of Him. So may that understanding not only give us a better picture of who God is, but it would also spur us on to trust Him and live in humble obedience to Him. Let's pray. Father, You are glorious and perfect. Your jealousy and wrath reflect Your perfect nature. Though it may be difficult for us to grasp, I pray that You would impress these truths on our hearts. Help us to respond with loyal devotion and gratitude to You. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.